0: Good evening to you. It's good to see you all out here this evening. And we're going to open up God's word together. We're looking at that parable from Matthew chapter 20. And I do apologize, we should have read verse 16 as well. I hadn't chopped it off for some uh, spurious theological reason. Uh, It is there and and we will be looking at that too. So the last will be first and the first will be last. That's an important punchline, isn't it? Uh, Anyway, Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll get that open in front of us. Father, we do thank you for your word. Every word of it is living and active and powerful. We ask, Lord, that you will bless us this evening as we look at it. We ask that you would help us to understand it and help us to apply it to our hearts and our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, yes, please do have uh, Matthew chapter 20 open in front of you. It all neatly fits in that last column in the in the church Bibles. So you've got it all there on your lap. This evening we're going to be looking at another of Jesus' parables. We're doing a little series in those, going when, when I come up once a month, <laughs> in case you haven't noticed a pattern. <laughs> now remember, all of the parables tell us something about the kingdom of God. That's what they're there. And therefore, and this is this is no exception here. This parable is a story teaching a lesson about grace and grace is the economy of the kingdom hence we've had all of these songs wonderful songs about grace now remember the kingdom of god basically means the realm of the eternal rule of god it's quite simple really it's where god rules to belong to the kingdom means that you belong to god and that god is your king And it's a citizenship of great blessing. Members of this kingdom are those who are put crudely. They're they're those who are going to heaven. It's a great thing to be a member of the kingdom of God. You're going to heaven. And the issues underlying this short story, the one real key issue is that of qualification for entrance into God's kingdom. That's what we're looking at here tonight. Not just how do I qualify, but how well qualified am I to be in the kingdom of God? How how well qualified am I? Are there some who are worthy of greater recognition in God's kingdom? A bigger reward, perhaps, for services rendered in this life. Who is greater and who is lesser in God's kingdom? Who has the most right to citizenship? or even a special position in God's kingdom. We've got, those are all the issues being raised up here. And why? It's because Jesus' disciples were very concerned about that issue. If you read through any of the four Gospels, you'll see this. They often like to argue about it, in fact. Now, just to get a flavor, flip back quickly to chapter 18, and you'll see it going on right there in verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1. We're told that at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is the the big important question on their minds. And it was at this point that Jesus then stood a child in front of them all and told them that the one who takes the lowly position like a child will be great in his kingdom. And they're left scratching their heads, because that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Especially in their culture. And then to make things worse, Shortly afterwards, in fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 19. So leading up to this, chapter 19, look, a very impressive young man comes to Jesus. And I guess the disciples are sort of looking at this bloke and thinking, now there is a, is a likely candidate to join our ranks. He's a law keeper and he's very wealthy and he's interested in spiritual things as we're introduced to him. But he's, we find out very quickly, so attached to his wealth. That he rejects Jesus and Jesus says it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a man like that to even enter his kingdom interesting so well who is qualified that's the interesting question that raises your mind isn't it passing a camel through the eye of a needle well that's impossible right we all agree that to pass a camel through the eye of a needle is impossible. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying it's harder for a rich man, someone under the grip of their wealth, to enter the kingdom of God than to do that. So Jesus is saying it's harder than impossible, right? It's harder than impossible for that to happen. And when the the, the dismayed disciples then ask, well, who then can be saved, Jesus? He tells them, verse 26, with man this is impossible. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, left to ourselves, using only our own efforts, no one can be saved. Entering God's kingdom is only going to be possible if God steps in and does it for us. That's how you'll enter the kingdom. None of us can come close to being good enough for heaven. That's the long and short of it. But the disciples just don't want to let this issue, this issue drop. Maybe it's a question of pride for them. They can, and when they can't take it any longer, Peter blurts out in verse 27 of chapter 19, he says, Jesus, look, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? We gave it all up, Jesus. What will there be for us? And even after Jesus tells this parable just after that statement, in chapter 20, verse 20, so even after Jesus has tried to really rub in how this all works, in chapter 20, verse 20, James and John get their mum. It's always good to get your mum. Mums can really work people, can't they? James and John get their mum to come and ask Jesus for the best seats in God's kingdom. So obsessed with this idea of positioning God's kingdom. Surely there's some kind of hierarchy in the kingdom. Surely our efforts count for something. And when you think about it, that's actually quite a reasonable concern, isn't it? If I work really hard for Jesus down here, if I'm devoted, shouldn't I get some kind of recognition for it? Shouldn't I? Shouldn't I have a, some kind of higher status than those who just slob about, who don't do their quiet times, who sack off the prayer, prayer meeting and stay at home watching Downton Abbey? Shouldn't I get some sort of recognition more than them? See, we all think this way to some extent because that's how the world works. We live and operate in a world that, operate, that works that way. So even as kids, mum's got to be scrupulously fair, hasn't she, with serving pudding? It's the same thing kicks in. If a kid thinks their brother or sister has got a slightly better slice of cake, well it's the end of the world. And surely, then, under the same reasoning, those brave pioneer missionaries, the Jim Elliots, the brother Andrews, the Hudson Taylors, beaten for taking the gospel into inland China, Corrie Boom, survivor of the Holocaust, you know, surely they are more worthy of heaven than you and me, aren't they? Surely they're more worthy. Surely they are at least a more clear-cut case for entrance. You'd think, wouldn't you? But Jesus says the economy of his kingdom is different. It's an economy of grace. In verse 16, his is a kingdom where, and it's the verse that we missed off, so your attention should really be riveted to it. Verse 16, it's a kingdom where the last will be first and the first will be last. What a strange sentence. In fact, interestingly, that summary bookends the parable on both sides. It, the last verse of chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Our attention's supposed to be grabbed by that sentence, isn't it? So how does that work? Well, consider two contrasting real-life examples before we look at this story, and then we'll unpack it. First of all, consider judas iscariot consider him he's a follower of jesus right from the start of jesus ministry so he's dropped out of his everyday life and he's given three years 24 7 to Jesus' discipleship program he's full in he's eating and sleeping and living with jesus he's right in the ministry he's in the in crowd And he has a trusted position in there. He's a man of responsibility. He's the the accountant, the one who holds all the money, the treasurer. And he's been on the mission trips, done all the mission trips with the disciples, been sent out, he's preached, he's healed people. Interesting, isn't it? He's done all of that stuff. It's hard to get better kingdom credentials than that, isn't it? Yet he was the one who betrayed Jesus and then ended his life with suicide. He is the one about whom Jesus himself says, woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him had he not been born. I don't think he's in the kingdom of God, do you? And now contrast him, discipleship candidate right there, gold star boy, with the thief who died on the cross next to Jesus. That's our second example. Think about him. This is a convicted criminal who by his own admission, up there nailed to the cross, says that he is justly deserving of the horrific death sentence that he's enduring. Matthew records that even up to his last moments, this man, whilst hanging on his own cross, joins in with heaping insults on Jesus. That's a piece of work, isn't it? But for some reason, just hours from his death, in the 11th hour, as it were, this man stopped, he owned up to his guilt, and asked Jesus to rescue him. And Jesus replied, Today you will be with me in paradise. He's in the kingdom. Messes with your head, doesn't it? A disciple for three years, and a last ditch bid for rescue in the last remaining minutes of his life. And one inherits the kingdom, and the other doesn't even enter it. What gives? Well, the answer, for those with ears to hear it, remember, because that's what parables are, they're for people with ears to hear it. The answer is in this parable. So let's take a look. Verse 1. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire his workers for his vineyard. So Jesus paints a familiar picture from everyday life in Palestine. A landowner goes to employ workers for his vineyard it's harvest time there's lots of work clearly to be done it's a sudden rush all the harvest is coming in and he's got to get all the help that he can now we think a nine to five is is a hard day's work but people in Jesus' day they would work a 12 hour day they're going to really go for it especially labourers because this stuff's got to get in while there's daylight so this man heads down to the marketplace and uh, He's there at the crack of dawn, we're told. He's there at 6 a.m. Okay? He's there ready to recruit people. And he wants to recruit as many laborers as he can. Now, the first thing to notice is he offers them a very generous wage. He offers the workers right there at 6 a.m. He says, I will give you a denarius, a full denarius. That's a very, very good day's wage. Apparently, a professional Roman soldier, an officer in that period might take home 225 denarii per year. So one denarius for a day, do the maths. That's good wages. And these are unskilled labourers. This is a golden opportunity. It's top pay and then some, isn't it? So they happily agree to work. I mean, they're delighted, aren't they? They can't believe their luck. But then the plot thickens. They disappear off. They're off doing their work. And the landowner, Jesus tells his audience, returns to the marketplace. He returns a number of times. He goes at 9 a.m., he goes at 12 a.m., halfway through the day. Then he goes back at 3 p.m., and then just to rub it in, one final time, 5 p.m., that's an hour before knocking off time, the landowner goes back and recruits more people. Each time he recruits anyone that he finds idle, and he puts them to work in his vineyard. And don't miss the detail in verse 4. Look, he told them, you also go work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. I'll pay you what's right. So with each subsequent group, no wage is actually set. Do you see? The landowner now just says, I'll pay you what's right. I'll pay you what's right. Don't you worry. You go and work. I'll pay you what's right. They go to work because daylight is burning. They've sat around all day doing nothing. They've they've not used their day productively at all, have they? It's been a complete waste of a day for them. And uh, chances of earning even a few pennies are fading away for these people. Any work is better than no work. You don't want to return home empty-handed when you're living hand-to-mouth. You don't expect much. Just something. Well, the working day then ends, and the owner of the vineyard, we're told, says to his foreman, look, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and then going on to the first. Then the landowner stands back to oversee as his foreman pays all of the workers in turn, starting with the last first. Hint, hint to pick up on that, aren't we? So the latecomers pitch up at the front of the queue. These are the guys that started at 5 p.m. They're probably not expecting very much. They've only done at the most an hour's work and probably quite a lot less. Think about it. After walking to the vineyard, getting out the tools, figuring out what they're doing, they would have achieved actually little more than showing up, would they? Showing up, maybe moving something and then putting down tools. They've done nothing really. But here's the first shock of the story. The foreman hands them over a full denarius. They get a the full day's wage, a good day's wage, a generous 12 hour pay. They barely sh- showed up and they leave with a full pay packet. It's, I mean, that must be the best day of their lives, don't you think? Now, at this point, I suspect. Those who've done the full day's work as they see this happening, and we're given hints that this is what's going on, they're starting to salivate, aren't they? To, the, mat, the numbers are going around in their heads. They're doing the sums, thinking about this. If those guys just got a full denarius for an hour's work, quick mental maths, are we going to get 12? What's going to happen here? What will be their reward? I mean, It's got to be a good reward, right? And so now a denarius doesn't even look good at all, does it? When you've got your mind set on 12 denarius, that's not looking quite so good. But no, the second shock, the second shock of the story is every worker, regardless of the hours that they have put in, every single man is paid the same wage. So funny, you know, a denarius had sounded so good at the start of the day, hadn't it? Sounded so generous. But now denarius is pretty disappointing for some of these workers. And so the first employed group, those who've worked those long hours, they start to grumble. Look at verse 12. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Well, actually, it sounds like a pretty fair point, doesn't it? I can almost see myself saying that to my employer in a similar situation, can't you? It sounds like the landowner's being unfair, doesn't it? Well, the landowner, you know, they're not talking to him, they're talking to the foreman, but he seems to be overhearing. And he goes to one of them, and he comes to reason with them. Now, listen, he's not angry. That, that point's made very clearly, isn't it? He calls him friend. He, he's not angry with him. He's just concerned that don't get, don't get the idea that I'm unfair. Please don't get that idea. So verse 13, he answered one of them and said, Look, I'm not being unfair to you, friends. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? You agreed, didn't you? Take your pay and go. Friends, friends, he says, I'm not being unfair to you. We had an agreement. You agreed for a denarius, and that is exactly what I paid you. I'm being fair and just and good. A very good day's wage for an unskilled laborer. And then he continues in verse 14: Look, I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? As the loaner, as the landowner, his point is, as the one he owns everything he has the right to express his generosity. There's nothing unfair in being generous to those that he wants to be generous with. The ones at fault, actually, are those who are envious. The literal translation of that last question in verse 15 is, this thing about envious is, is your eye evil because I am good? It's quite an interesting expression, isn't it? Is your eye evil because I am good? The evil eye is the eye that's full of jealousy. It looks at people through a lens that's tainted with evil, full of jealousy. Generosity is good, isn't it? It's a good thing to be generous. We should celebrate generosity when we see it. The master asks, has my generous goodness caused your eye to sin? Did my generosity make your eye start sinning? Looking evilly at other people. Has my kindness caused your heart to be full of envy? All the workers have been shown generosity, haven't they? They've all been shown a generous, they've all got a generous employer here. In fact, all got better than they deserved. But they are angry simply because others were treated even more generously than they were. They couldn't stand the thought that other workers were getting the same pay without working as hard as they had, and so they became bitter. So that's that, That's the first hour workers who started and done a whole day. But what about the eleventh hour workers? Well, I guess they—they're just over the moon at what's happened, aren't they? They're just full of joy. A Pharisee named Simon once invited Jesus to his home for a meal. You can read the story in Luke chapter 7. Simon, the Pharisee, he was a proud man who believed himself to be righteous, and he was a man, we're told, who looked down on others. And whilst Jesus was in his house, a notoriously sinful woman, a woman known for her sin, came into his home that very evening and she fell at Jesus' feet, and she washed his feet with her tears, and poured expensive perfume on his feet. And Jesus received and spoke gently and tenderly to that woman, telling her that her sins were forgiven. And as he was doing that, Simon looked on, we're told, with an evil eye, and judged both her and Jesus for not sending her away. Reading his heart, Jesus said to Simon, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown, but he who has been forgiven little loves little, Simon. The 11th hour workers, they were blown away by the generosity of the landowner, and as they received their denarius, they were left with a deep appreciation And a profound understanding of the grace of the landowner. They understood grace. They left understanding grace, didn't they? Now, this parable is a picture, it's a parallel to teach us what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is how God treats those who come into his kingdom. In case you've missed it, let me briefly decode the parable for you. The landowner is a picture of God, the vineyard is his kingdom. The labourers, all of them, even the grumblers, are believers, those who've come into his service. The day of work is their lifetime. The evening, the twelfth hour, pay time, marks the start of eternity. The steward, well that's just a wonderful picture of Jesus, who has been given all judgment. And the denarius, the wage given to all regardless of the hours of their labour, is eternal life. See how the story comes together? Like the landowner, God comes down into the marketplace of this world and calls people into his generous employment. And you're privileged to be in that, aren't you? It's a generous thing. He seeks out people in every age who are living for nothing of eternal value, for nothing that's going to last. Their lives just ebbing away, pursuing treasures that perish, spoil, and fade. And he calls them and says, come, come out of that emptiness. Come out of just sitting around doing nothing of value. And come and work in my kingdom. Come and be fishers of men. And he calls them in. And some are called early in their lives. Some so early they can't even remember the day it happened. They just always remember being in God's kingdom. Some are called on their deathbeds on the 11th hour. But in every case, Make no mistake, they are called because of his generosity, his undeserved favor, his grace. And that is the big point of the story. There are none who deserve it. If you or I sent God our CV, think about that, it would be laughable, wouldn't it? There's nothing on there that would remotely impress God. I don't know why we would even bother doing it. And he's a good bloke, you know, he got an honors degree of some sort, trained as a teacher, very practical. He's a friendly guy, he's punctual. Yeah, he does, you know, gets there on time. But all of our righteous acts, the Bible says, are like filthy rags before God. <laughs> That's not going to look good on a CV, is it? And the Bible says the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, the weakness of God stronger than human strength. What am I boasting about? you know, after reciting his own CV, the Apostle Paul, it's quite amazing, in in the the letter to the Philippians, he recites his CV to them. An amazing CV in chapter 3. You know, it's a CV that you would envy. It's absolutely top-notch. And then he concludes and says about all of the things on his CV, I consider them garbage. Something, isn't it? Or at an interview, just imagine... You know, don't you, don't you hate it when they ask you in an interview, I don't know if when some of you were last at an interview, I don't know, and they say something like, well, tell me about your weaknesses. Hmm? What do you need to improve? I hate that question. I can never think of anything. <laughs> Obviously, just too perfect. Imagine God interviewing you and asking you that question. My weaknesses, my failures, as you stand before God, everything, everything's a failure. Come to think of it, I wouldn't even recruit myself for heaven. I'm really not a good candidate. If God is selecting recruits, employing workers, it's only, and I don't care who you are, it's only going to be by grace if he employs you into his kingdom. And not only that, the reward they receive, the wages, look, they bear no relation to the work that they do for him. they bear no relation to it. God is not impressed with our hard work. He's not impressed with our flawless performance. Our achievements don't determine our position in the kingdom. The Bible repeatedly declares the absolute folly of boasting, boasting in ourselves and what we do, in who we are, what we've done, as if that affects in any way our salvation or our status before God. And this parable illustrates that same issue. Salvation is all of grace. But here we're also warned of another danger. Perhaps actually another facet of pride. We're warned about envy, aren't we? We're warned about an evil eye. The danger of developing an evil eye. Is that a danger for you? Developing an evil eye as you look at people? Do you ever look at how God has blessed others? Look at their lives, how he's shown generosity to them and feel perhaps just that little little bit of resentment towards God because he's not giving you those things. You ever feel that? A spouse, a family, that job, that house, that lifestyle, those toys. Does your life seem tough? Do you feel like you're bearing the heat of the day? Whilst others around you seem to be just going for a walk in the park, can get to you sometimes, can't it? But to envy like that, listen, is to lose sight of your denarius. You've forgotten. You've forgotten the generosity of God. It is to allow, it is actually to allow God's goodness, his generous kindness, to actually perversely start to produce sin in your heart when the disciples plead the case of their hardship in chapter 19, saying, Jesus, we left everything to follow you, he reminded them, listen, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, everyone who has left houses or brothers or or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. No one enters God's kingdom on the basis of what they've achieved. And no one is more worthy on account of how hard they've worked. In fact, the only basis upon which anyone enters God's kingdom is on the basis of what he wants, what he chooses. Look carefully at verse 15. Look at those words. The landowner declares, Don't I have the right to do what I want? And that is why Jesus says that in his kingdom, look at verse 16, here's the key. The last will be first, and the first will be last. That's a strange statement. Have you ever thought about that? Try to straighten that statement out in your head. How can that be? What does it look like? First, last, last, first? Well, imagine a race. How can you have a result where the first are last, whilst at the same time in the race, the the, the last are first. It's simple, actually, when you think about it. Only if everyone crosses the finish line at the same time. Completely equal. And that's the point. That's the point of the parable. We need to get out of our heads that the way that... to get God to welcome us or to reward us, that getting to heaven has anything to do with cleaning up our acts or doing heroic acts of devotion or service. That is a pagan idea, actually. There's no treadmill of merits that we clock up enough grace to enter eternal life with. There's no purgatory where the deficit will have to be paid off, where we do a bit more bearing of the heat of the day to make ourselves worthy. There is only a finish line And Jesus says, we'll all cross it at the same time. You and I are called, then, to run a good race. That's the point. Run a good race. To run like a focused athlete, removing all of the encumbrances, fixing our gaze on that ribbon across the finish line at the end, picturing the medal in our heads, a medal that you're going to receive. And then running whatever distance God has set before you, whether it be uphill or downhill, in the rain or in the heat. The Christian life is all of grace. That's what this parable tells us. God's undeserved generosity. Everything done for us. And yet there's a race to run at the same time. It's amazing. The, the, the denarius is in the bag. That's the point. You've got the denarius, but there's work to be done. So get running. And the big question this parable asks some of us, all of us really, is will you run? Will you run? And God is calling even this evening, seeking out workers for his vineyard. However far through your day you might be, he's holding out a denarius to you, eternal life. And he's going to put you to work. You take that, you go for the denarius, he'll put you to work. Not so that you can earn it, but so that he can generously give it to you. So are you in? Well, just in closing, I want you to consider once more that, just picture in your mind, the thief dying on the cross next to Jesus. As he casts himself at the mercy of the Saviour dying next to him. All he can do right there is appeal for rescue, isn't it? I think the point is made, actually, by that story. He certainly can't do anything to try to earn God's acceptance. That moment's passed for good now, hasn't it? His hands are nailed down. And yet, seeing his repentance and his faith in a saviour outside of himself, Jesus declares, today you'll be with me in paradise. eternal life is yours. And moments later, Jesus paid for all of that man's wrongdoing. He paid the lot. All his rebellion, all his wickedness, his pride, his selfishness, he paid for it with his blood. And after three hours of unnatural darkness, Jesus cried out his final words, paid in full, and breathed his last. All the thief contributed was his sin. And in exchange, Jesus paid the denarius of eternal life. And just like that thief, you can come to Jesus with empty hands today and be assured of a welcome. For the Bible tells us he is able to save completely those who come to him, come to God through him, because he always, always lives to intercede for them.